Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, and welcome to Free Exchange. I'm Oliver Wiseman, host of Free Exchange and editor of CapEx. Since the election of Donald Trump, and to a lesser extent, the Brexit referendum, there's been a fierce debate about what caused these political earthquakes. Are the drivers of these votes primarily economic or cultural? The economic side of the argument is the more popular one. Consider, for example, the stereotypical Trump voter, somebody probably in the Rust Belt, who has been on the sharp end of globalisation. He has struggled to find work since deindustrialization rendered his skills redundant. He is one of the losers of recent economic history. Eric Kaufman, Professor of Politics at Birkbeck College London, thinks this caricature is badly wrong. His new book, White Shift, is attracting plenty of attention and praise for the more uncomfortable conclusion it draws, that recent ruptures like Trump and Brexit can almost entirely be explained by identity, not economics. According to Kaufman, they are the consequence of demographic change. The white majority is declining, and as it does so, it feels culturally threatened. That, he argues forcefully, is why anti-immigrant messages of candidates like Trump are so appealing. For the podcast this week, I met Eric in his Birkbeck office, to talk about the ideas in his monumental and thorough study of a very difficult subject. I started by asking him to explain the multiple meanings of white shift. Yeah, very much the term, the title white shift kind of captures two things. One is this decline, this demographic decline in the white majority share of the population of Western countries this century. So the U.S., for example, was 85% non-Hispanic white in the mid-1960s, it's now about 60% non-Hispanic white, and the under-5 population is already what they call majority-minority. So that's the country where this process has advanced the fastest. Uh, in Europe, the white majority share is, is sort of 80-85% in the main Western European countries, but uh, that's set to decline, and so by the time we hit the end of this century, the white majority will be sort of is expected to be below half the population. So that's kind of the backdrop to this. And what I'm arguing in the book is the reason immigration is such a big issue is largely because it sort of makes people aware of this change, this loss, if you like, of ethnic majority um, yeah, preponderance in a country, the loss of that uh, tradition of having an ethnic majority in the country. It's not primarily because immigration is about pressure on public services or pressure on jobs for native workers. I think those are not the main drivers. And, and a lot of this comes out in the sort of large-scale survey data sets that I've looked at. The second meaning, I guess, of white shift is, is, a, is even further down the road, which is this internal shift. I'm arguing that white majorities will transform into largely mixed-race majorities. And because if you look at this country, for example, the uh, mixed race share, which is only about 2% now, is, and it'll only be about 7% at mid-century. But by the end of the century, it's 30%, and then a few decades later, it's 75%. You know, it's sort of exponential. Um, but my argument is that that 
mixed group will uh, take on the mantle and the heritage of the myths of ancestry, traditions, etc. of the white majority and will become, if you like, fused with the, the white majority. So that's kind of the argument that today's white majorities will ultimately absorb peoples of many different backgrounds but will largely retain their mytho-symbolic structure. And that's kind of the way ethnicity works if you look over the long term. And before we get on to you know, Brexit, Trump, and so on, right. it's worth pointing out, I think, in your book, what you're really... Um, I, mean, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but you are essentially correcting one thing in particular, which is the idea that white or majority, or however you want to put it... Um, ethnic identity is somehow either doesn't exist or is sort of less valid than minority ones so that's kind of what you're that's what you think everyone before you has kind of or lots of people before you have got wrong on on that front yeah absolutely i mean there is a couple of things first of all this literature in academia has been dominated to some extent by something called critical race theory or whiteness studies which tends to see uh white Majorities as essentially a power construct and that's constantly evolving in order to maintain power. That doesn't really fit very well with the psychological research that we know about group identity and the way it works. It also doesn't fit with how minorities see white identity, which is generally they see it as an ethnic identity like any other. So this is really the first point. And secondly, there's also psychological research which is very clear that shows that attachment to one's own group is not correlated with dislike of another group. So on mm-hmm. just to give you an example, on the American National Election Studies of 2016, your warmth towards a white American's warmth towards white people on a 0 to 100 thermometer is, if anything, positively correlated with their warmth towards black people. Uh, and that's very different from, say, liberals and conservatives. So the more warm you feel towards liberals, the cooler you feel towards conservatives. Mm-hmm. That's much more of a zero-sum kind of uh, identity. So it is the case that when identities are an open conflict, then yes, you can get the phenomenon of attached to your own group means you dislike out groups. But in general, attachment to being white is not correlated with disliking non-whites. And so that's a kind of mistake that I think a lot of critics make. So there's really actually nothing wrong with attachment to being an, you know, part of an ethnic majority as much as attachment to being an ethnic minority. There's nothing wrong with that unless it becomes an obsessive thing of, you know, where you start to in, uh, attribute uh, innate characteristics to a particular mm-hmm. race or you start to talk about race purity or you start to... Uh, so, so, but as long as it's simply about attachment to myths and symbols, your own group, in a moderate way, that's absolutely fine. And so I think this is one of the arguments I'm making is we need to get away from the demonization of these white majorities, which I ultimately think is a driver of some of the discontent, particularly in the U.S., uh, that, that led to the Trump vote. And just on that point, I mean, I think one of the things in the book I kind of, in a way, struggled to get my head around the most, actually, was, was this quite core cool one, which is basically the question of, sort of why whiteness? I mean... Um, you describe really interestingly in the book, um, I think in America is a better example than Britain, but you describe how whiteness in America used to be sort of wasp, mean, you know, white Anglo-Saxon and Protestant. And if you were an Italian immigrant or if you were a Jewish immigrant, um, you know, you were, defi- you were sort of not, you were basically not white. Um, and, and today, though, that definition has changed and um, Italian Americans are, 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 you know, part of this majority identity. Um, in a way, that's what's 
that's what you describe as going to happen in the future, right? But 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 why if whiteness is always, you know, why, why is white why is why is skin color the sort of go to? Absolutely. Okay. So there's really two meanings of that term white. One is a racial category based on phenotype, which is what you're talking about, mm-hmm. um, which is simply a, a part of the color spectrum uh, with very arbitrary bound or not relatively arbitrary boundaries. It's a bit like the distinction between red and blue, which we know actually has no basis physically right. uh, on the electromagnetic spectrum with a purple in the middle. Um, that's sort of one meaning. The second meaning, which is more what I'm talking about, is white as a proper name of an ethnic majority group. Ethnicity defined, by the way, by belief in shared ancestry. doesn't mean you have to share all ancestry with other people. It's just a portion of your lineage. So this is these groups are defined on the basis of common ancestry, which are called by the proper name white, of course, can be narrower than the phenotypical racial category. So mm-hmm. what we talk about with wasps in the United States the ethnic majority was narrower than the white mm-hmm. racial category. What I'm suggesting is that that ethnic whiteness, if you like, is going to become broader than the white racial category. So you'll have people that don't look white mm-hmm. but who are part of the white group. And in fact, we already see this in places like Brazil where family history, the way, you know, the job you have and a whole, whole bunch of other things are germane to whether you're considered white or not. And so it's not a purely uh, physical... Uh, category, although somebody who is obviously got, you know, who, who, is, who looks very white is obviously going to be a member of the, this white majority group, unless perhaps they are, you know, they have an accent and they're Muslim, maybe not. But generally speaking, I try to distinguish between white as a racial category and white as an ethnic majority. And, and it's that second meaning that I'm really focusing on. The other thing I should say is that a lot of your listeners perhaps who may think of themselves as just British or just English and they, mm. they just think in terms of their national identity, mm. which is territorial political, but the, but but encoded or at the center of that national identity often is some notion of ethnicity. So when you ask people in this country, um, is, it import, is it at all important to have British ancestry to be truly British? Notice that prefix truly or authentically, or that's when you will get, so 51% of people will say yes to some degree. And I think it's not they're saying, I don't think what they mean is that if you don't have British ancestry, you aren't an equal citizen. But I think what they are tr- sort of groping towards is this notion that um, there is some sort of ethnic form of Britishness which is connoted by the word truly or real or whatever. And they're sort of indicating that, yes, British ancestry is part of what, what that is. So I think it's partly masked for a lot of ethnic majority people. They only think in terms of their national identity, but actually encoded in that national identity is it's, it's sort of mixed in with that national identity mm-hmm. is that ethnic majority identity okay well let's um let's talk about the let's mention the t okay. word uh trump yes um now you there's a, there's a big debate that's been going on since um since trump's election uh well, and before really but about explaining the, this political phenomenon and the very simple dichotomy that it gets boiled down to is is this an is this is trump riding a wave of, sort of economic resentment or cultural resentment um now you come down in a very unambiguous and i would say very hard line way on one side of that fence which is you say this is a um a question of identity and um uh, and and you know the the, the kind of um, forgotten man to use Trump's phrase from his from his election, in the sense of forgotten by globalization and uh, you know the steel mill shutting at the end of at the end of his street. 
is 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 actually basically a myth. Yeah, essentially that's right. I mean, I, in contrast to a lot of other authors, including Eatwell and Goodwin, by the way, I mean, I really see this as squarely an identity-based, identity-driven phenomenon. And, um, I mean, there's a phrase from from uh, the Kahneman and Tversky, the behavioral economists, who say, you know, people aren't rational, they rationalize. So the reason people give for voting Brexit or Trump is is one thing, but that mm. may not be the actual driver. And the only way you can get at the actual drivers is to do statistical modeling where you look at what uh, correlates with, say, a Trump vote, what cor- or you do an experiment uh, where you show certain people one image or a set of text and see how that affects their support for Trump. And what you find is, the, I mean, I think the evidence is very strongly supporting the identity-based argument. So, for example, beliefs about immigration. Uh, you know, do you want immigration reduced a lot? That's hugely predictive of supporting Trump in the primaries. And the key really is to explain his primary victory. I mean, the general election victory is important too, but in terms of the primary victory, um, beliefs about immigration, beliefs about admitting Syrian refugees, those were the questions, or, or even beliefs about our whites being discriminated against in the United States. I mean, that's the kind of thing that correlates very strongly with support for Trump, whereas and just Trump interject- does not. On that point, it's also you're not just talking about among white Americans, are you? You're talking about among even among like the, one of the interesting things in your book is yeah, yeah. even among Latino or Asian American Trump voters that they, they would say they'd be much more likely to answer yes to the question: Are whites discriminated against? Absolutely, yeah. So Trump and yeah, yeah Asian and Latino Trump voters as well as white uh, uh, Trump voters are both quite anti-immigration and also. Um, see that there's a fair bit of, I mean, they would argue that you know, wh- white Americans are under attack in this country. They would tend to agree with that to the tune of 70%, I mean, in a survey that I cite in the book. So yeah, it's this um, these cultural issues that tend to drive support. Whereas if you look at, if you just take the white population, income does not correlate with a Trump vote. Uh, economic status doesn't correlate with a Trump vote. And really, if you pay, if you look at these closings of factories, I mean, this has been going on since the 1970s in, in various measures. Mm-hmm. Um, the income of the American worker has been pretty stagnant for you know, 40, 50 years. And to, to suddenly say, oh, that's the reason, um, I, I think it's very slipshod. It's partly because it's just more acceptable for somebody like Steve Bannon to say it's economic nationalism and it's the American worker and the little guy. That is a much more culturally acceptable thing to say than... Um, you know, we're losing our country. I don't recognize my country anymore because the demographic change and increase in Hispanics. And yet, it's that second feature which is ultimately the uh, ex- you know the explanatory factor for what we see. And it's very clear in the data. And actually, it matches what we see in terms of data on on Brexit vote and on the populist right in Europe as well. I mean, a good example from Germany was the recent AFD vote in Bavaria, where the question was asked. Uh, you know, how much do you agree with the following statement? Germany is gradually losing its culture. Mm-hmm. 100% of AFD voters agreed with that, mm-hmm. compared to only 20% of green voters. So that's kind of giving you an indication of, of what's going on. Just to, on that, yeah. just to push back a bit on that, I, I, one of the things I, I just find it really, I mean, your book, I should say, is stuffed full of very <laughs> compelling uh, data, and uh, it's very, very tightly argued uh, in that sense. Just taking a step back, though, and being, you know, very non-academic about it, being very journalistic about it, it just seems so hard to believe that um, when you look at 
some of what's happened to the white working class in America, um, whether that's the sort of look, for instance, the numbers of um, working age men who aren't in the workforce um, and wages, especially compared to other ethnic groups and so on. They may have a set. I mean, in a way, I think this is because the, the, the economic and culture thing is slightly too black and white. But part of their sense of like the country isn't run in my interests and um, white Americans get a raw deal and my country's going away. Surely their sense of economic self-worth and is part of their identity, too. And so, you know, I don't I would sort of question how much you can kind of separate all of this out. Well, I guess from a social scientist perspective, I would say if that were true, then the more somebody fits the description you just gave, the more likely they should be to vote for Donald Trump. So mm-hmm. if, if somebody is unemployed, if somebody is on a low income, etc., we would expect that they would be more likely to support mm-hmm. Donald Trump. And yet we don't find that. Once we control for other factors where so education isn't that, isn't much, that sorry just on that yeah. isn't that partly also a question of we're talking about a republican presidential candidate here so we're talking about i mean you'd expect high, this is one of the interesting things in american politics but generally mm-hmm. speaking there's it's, it's potentially true that you know essentially rich trump voters are voting for him for one reason namely that he's a, a republican candidate who's maybe will cut their taxes and working class americans voting for him for another reason do you, do you know what I mean so yeah, yeah, in but, that data there might be well what yes but what we can do is say you know within just the white working class voters yep. the ones who went for trump had the cultural attitudes okay the ones who didn't go for trump did not have those cultural attitudes i mean you see what i mean so within all levels yeah within all class levels within all income levels there's a lot of variation, and that variation is predicted by these identity or cultural variables. So I think it's, you know, I'm open to being contradicted once I see some data mm-hmm. that shows individual level economic data that shows that. The only kinds of studies that I've seen that point to any effect are at the aggregate level, and there are all, all kinds of methodological problems with comparing, yeah, it's true, certain areas which are depressed, let's say. But the problem with that is that has many different effects on individuals within those areas. So yeah. it's not as valid. So I have yet to see a proper study that shows individual level economic variables making much difference to support for Trump. It's all in the you know, support for the death penalty. It's um, immigration. It's sense of whites mm-hmm. being discriminated against, coolness to feminists, all these sorts of variables coming out very strongly, whereas all the economic stuff is just not there. And, and, and now, what, what's true is you do have, I mean, the Sanders phenomenon, so the left-wing populism, yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. There you see some of the economic things you're talking about really do matter. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the right-wing populism, I just haven't seen the evidence. Yeah, explain for me also these, these sort of personality types that kind of get, feed into some of this as well. Right. So this is a lot of this is based on the work of Karen Stenner, a social psychologist who's done a lot of work on, on what's called psychological authoritarianism, by which is meant people who prefer stability and order and see the world as something they need to be protected from in some way. And also what she calls status quo conservatives, who, who are people who prefer stability to change. Um, and these are the kind of voters that support the populist right in all countries, and, and the U.S. is no exception to that rule. And in fact, there's, there's uh, in, in this country, there's something called the British Values Survey, um, which, in which um, you see that they can actually map people's uh, responses to sort of 100 
psychological questions and they, the, the questions cluster. Mm -hmm. and you can see parts of the map that light up. And the sort of top third of the map is called the settlers, which are the people who, you know, right. who are status quo conservatives and who, who tend to prefer order and stability and security. Um, so this is really the kind of voter. And it doesn't actually matter whether that person is working class, middle class, whether they have a degree or don't have a degree. That psychological orientation is very powerful. And according to Stenner, it's sort of a third to a half heritable. So it's got a very deep-rooted uh, element to it. And if it's not something you can simply educate someone something or somebody out of. And so the attempt, actually, to tell such a person, no, diversity is great. You should celebrate diversity. Dis uh, that's something that we, we, we want to, you know, that, that you should value. That will actually get their back up. And so it's having the opposite effect of, of what it's supposed to have. And because it's sort of linked into biography and heredity, and, 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 and it, it, that makes it a, a sort of a bedrock in some ways of the new politics. So instead of talking about class, instead of talking about, you know, metropolitan, non-metropolitan, instead of talking even about anywheres and somewheres, as David Goodhart mm -hmm. talks about, which is to do with where you live and where you grew up, I think all of those kind of social groups are less powerful than these sort of psychological categories, which are much closer to populist right voting. So, so that's really the kind of key. If we want to know who mm. is voting populist right, it's, it's people who are status quo conservatives or who are psychologically authoritarian. And so let's, let's talk about Brexit then, because, yeah. um, I mean, building on what you just said, one of the... One of the frustrations for me about understanding the sort of you know post mortem of the Brexit vote is this um, this is the geographical dimension of it. So there's this idea that there's kind of I think I heard someone put it you know Romania and Brexit land or well, I can't remember what the, the phrases they used, right. but and the big gap in that account, of course, is the 25% of people in Islington who voted to leave and the and the 25% of people in a sort of you know stereotypical East. Uh, East Coast old ex-fishing town who voted to remain, you know, Correct. And, and your account, obviously, one of the very, very compelling things about it, I would say, is it, it does create space for them because you're saying it's not about the economic circumstances of where you live or anything like that. It's yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, this is a, a this is one of the problems with the media narrative where people look at election maps and they see the cities as not voting for the Freedom Party in Austria, not voting mm. for Trump, not voting leave completely misleading because the cities have populations that are younger that are university educated higher shares of ethnic minorities all groups that tend not to vote for populism uh, right-wing populism and so naturally the cities are going to look that way mm -hmm. what you actually have to do is compare apples to apples a white working class person in london a white working class person in cumbria let's say uh, and what you see, actually, is the white working class person in London is, if anything, slightly more likely to have voted leave, mm -hmm. especially when you control for the ethnic composition of the district. Okay. Um, so this notion that something about the dynamic economy or the cosmopolitan atmosphere of London uh, ch creates a wholly new kind of voter is a myth. Uh, and likewise, for the, for the rural areas and for the north, there's a lot of remainers in those areas. Even if we take two-person households, you know, if you just take two-person households, in 25% of them there was a split on the Brexit vote. And that kind of tells you, you know, two-person household, it's in the same place, roughly the same economic position. These, the couple is influencing each other's views, and there's still 
in 25% of the cases, a difference on the vote. So that's telling you that these idiosyncratic psychological factors are hugely important. And, and this is sort of buried partly because there's a kind of... Um, it suits politicians not to... Not just, and, and journalists and everyone, really. Mm-hmm. It suits them not to, to present it like that because if you say... Uh, you know, if you're Theresa May, for instance, you say uh, the Brexit vote was um, an illustration of these burning injustices in Britain, and that's why my domestic agenda is great. Or if you're Jeremy Corbyn, you say, and that's why austerity has destroyed Britain. And you know, so or if you're Nigel Farage, or if you are Steve Bannon, you say it's it's about um, sovereignty, and it's mm-hmm. and, and so again, they're all playing this game where they're all spinning it in a way they think is going to be legitimate mm-hmm. and and you know where, so they don't really want to face up to what is the actual driver it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I mean, it's worth pointing out there, but these, yeah. these, these are, you're talking about trends and uh, sort of char- vague char- you know, tendencies in certain directions. It is possible, of course, to be a, um, you could be a Remain voter who, was, who cared a lot about identity and, uh, and, and, hate, and, 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 and didn't, you know, was very conservative about some things. You could be a Lever who was quite cosmopolitan and risk-taking, and, you know, but you're talking about the, you know, before there are any angry listeners out there thinking like, I voted Leave and I'm not, right. like, you know. But you're yeah, talking absolutely. about the tendencies. Right? This is the tendency. So yeah, you're always going to have people who voted for different reasons. Mm-hmm. So this is not everybody, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that you know, obviously in some cases, as with the AFD in Bavaria, you know, where, where yeah. it was 100% of people agreeing that Germany's losing it, you know, gradually yeah. losing its culture. But I, something like the Brexit or Trump vote, yeah. no. I think there's, there are mixed mix of motivations, but the, the largest chunk, I would say, of the vote was motivated by this sense of loss Loss of the familiar, loss of identity, loss of these uh, traditions of national identity. So I think that's really the, I mean, it would be more productive in my view to have the debate to some extent on those grounds. And I think you can have that debate and you can talk about identity and culture. It's not as though, you know, the way it's portrayed in the media is often, oh, if you go there, you're just talking about these hermetically sealed racial groups and it's just a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. Actually, no, because these groups are all to some extent porous and assimilative, you can start to imagine sort of 
the way that ethnic majority identity might evolve in the future. And that that's actually a more productive mm -hmm. way, a more productive route to go down than to pretend it's something that it's not, such as pressure on services, or to deflect it into, you know, it can take nastier forms. I think civic nationalism, which is, say, anti-Muslim on the grounds of that, that Islam is, is anti-individual rights, anti-free mm -hmm. speech, anti-women, etc. I mean, I think in many ways that is a, because that's anti a group, Mm. I think it's actually more negative than mm -hmm. to say we, the ethnic majority, feel like we're losing something and we want to slow things down yep. to be able to assimilate. I think it's actually a more positive message, um, but nobody's re really willing to address that and open up that conversation. So that's really what I try to do in the book. Okay, so let's let's move on then to that. I mean, the just the, the sort of stepping stone to get there is to understand why uh, part of your book is about the sort of um, the left wing and, and also mainstream treatment of some of these issues. So the you know immigration as a as a flare as a as a big flare up for concerns over identity in your in your in your book is you know did not happen in a vacuum. And part of your theory is that this was made which was exacerbated by um, broadly speaking the left's treatment of the issue. Is that I mean do you yeah, want to explain that? That's the... right. So I think there since the nineteen sixties there has emerged something I call left modernism, which is a new ideology distinct from socialism, which was the old economic left, which is essentially t takes cultural group equality and diversity as sacred values. Mm -hmm. And that means that you can't, you know, those values are, are to be pushed to the extreme and you can't go against those values. Immigration and questioning immigration levels, for example, is seen as going against those values and therefore there was a strong pressure not to talk about these issues in a number of countries. Actually, to some extent, Britain's conversation was more open because of its press and because of uh, you know yeah. the nature of its society. But still, um, certainly not in, in places like Germany, Sweden, United States, mm -hmm. that was not the case. Um, so I think wh where this comes from or where this stems from is this expansion of the university system which allows sort of this left modernist belief system, call it equality, diversity, uh, which becomes a kind of religious um, crusade in a way. And it also starts to seep in and permeate the norms of the elite institutions of society in a milder form. And so therefore it becomes difficult to have these conversations about speed, about slowing down, about cultural motivations. That's all tarred as kind of racist. So the meaning of racism expands. It's something that the psychologist Nick Haslam calls concept creep, mm -hmm. whereby the meaning of terms expands and expands. So talking about the nation, talking about immigration becomes racism. Right. Uh, and that shuts down the conversation. And that's a very black and white view of the world. It's like you're either across the red line or you're not across the red line. Um, now, you do have to have norms around, clearly around, uh, uh, you know, fearing, hating uh, racial minority groups. I very much support anti-racist norms, but they have to be about racism. Once they expand to take certain policies off the agenda, they close down a conversation. And what does that do? It's, I use the example of uh, selling liquor in Prohibition in the 1920s. If the mainstream outlets are not able to sell liquor, who's going to sell liquor? Well, it's going to be a bootlegger. Mm -hmm. In this case, in the political case, if the mainstream parties are blocked from, a, from addressing this question by a taboo, then a political entrepreneur is going to move into that vacuum. And that's kind of what we've seen. So this is where I'm arguing that the, in some ways the overreach of that cosmopolitan left or what I call left modernism 
in, introduces a sort of blockage in the normal working of politics, which is what allows populism to enter. So, and, and for even for the average voter, too, there's this cross-pressuring between those anti-racist norms and um, perhaps their uh, desire for a slower pace of change, and they're kind of working with this tension. And so this is one of the reasons why, as populist parties do better, there can be a self-fulfilling effect, because they're breaking down the this sort of taboos and the barriers, uh, which to some extent restrain them. But then once those barriers, once those taboos have been broken, the memory of those of those grievances and taboos actually acts as a force multiplier right. for further populist voting, is particularly in the Trump case, opposition to political correctness, uh, both in experiments and in modeling, shows a very positive correlation with support for Trump. So actually, a lot of those pent-up grievances around political correctness then were let loose by the Trump presidency. So I think it's actually not a very productive way to conduct the discussion. I, I would rather see the see us have a discussion about pace of change, about culture, and to say, okay, some people want, some people like diversity and change. Some people prefer continuity and stability. We need to have a, a meeting in the middle. We need to have a civilized discussion. And I say immigration rates should be discussed as calmly as tax rates. Mm -hmm. And the cultural arguments should be on the table. And I think that it's certainly true that the direction of travel is, uh, in Britain at least, is towards your point of view. I mean, the... Right. the there is a case to be made for the Brexit vote being a um, one of the healthy things about the Brexit vote is that if you look at attitudes to immigration, for instance, they've sort of uh, they've actually they've actually sort of the whole debate has calmed down a lot. And I mean, not about Brexit to be no, clear, but, but you're about, right. But on, on the question of immigration, and it's there's a sort of pressure valve um, thing there. Right. Um, one question though I have about that um, whole area is, you know, the the biggest complaint from a sort of traditional liberal, classical liberal, rights-based, whatever, individual-based, whatever you want to call it, point of view, which is broadly where I'd say I was, uh, the bit of the left that you really push back, I would really push back hard against, is the identity politics element of it. Um, and I would sort of comfortably say I would also push back against the sort of white identity politics that you get on the, on the populist right, too. Um, but one of the, in that sense, one of the most challenging things about your book is that you're not actually rejecting identity politics in a way you're you're, you're sort of you're, you're sort of embracing that way of thinking about politics well yeah i so i'm not a um a sort of well individualistic liberal in the sense that i mean i am partly but i also agree with a communitarian critique which says that these historic identities do matter to people nation ethnic group that are they're transmitted across generations in a way that being a yuppie or a skater and, mm -hmm. and these sorts of things are not Transmitted, so they are, they develop over generations and have that capacity to kind of cohere communities. Um, so they are meaningful to people, um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with a group defending its interests in a moderate way. That is always giving the other group the benefit of the doubt, always going for less than a hundred percent of what you want. Um, but it is kind of you know to some extent all politics is identity politics, whether it's class not not entirely, but whether it's class based or or interest group based. Uh, so I don't have a real problem necessarily with minority groups, you know, if their group is being discriminated against or if they feel their group is not uh, getting adequate treatment and they've got the data and they've done and they have, it's a serious good faith attempt to show why that's the case. So we know I think there's pretty good studies showing that people with Muslim names do not get as many callbacks on on resume studies. So that's a that's a clear 
set of evidence, and I think it, it's legitimate for Muslims to raise that as a group interest. Mm -hmm. um, where I, and, and similarly, if, if whites, um, you know, if they say, well, we have a group interest in slower levels of immigration so that that will help us to assimilate, and you know, demographically we, we have an interest in wanting to you know, retain preponderance, uh, even if we accept that we're not going to retain preponderance everywhere that, through the assimilation process. I think that's actually a, a perfectly valid thing as long as it's done in, in, in a moderate way and as long as the kind of group identity is also balanced with a concern for the whole. So there's an optimization. You're concerned to optimize the good of all within the whole community as well Rather as your own section. Right, whereas I think what we see, for example, with the campus um, identity politics is, a, is what Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff um, you know, refer to as a, a sort of, you know, more of a, a black and white um, good versus evil, zero-sum kind of identity politics where you've got the bad white male, you know, heterosexual uh, as kind of the enemy and we're going to shame them and yeah, and, and so this... Any, this any is, loss for them is a win for us, basically. Right, yeah, and, and that we can't have a conversation because only uh, a, a black female can understand what it's like to be a black female and they don't need to, you know, have... Um, representative data to, to sort of make their case scientifically in a testable, falsifiable mm -hmm. way. So this idea that people can't reason in the same way and adhere to the same standards in terms of scientific evidence and analytic logic, that's where I have a big problem with the style of identity politics, which is very much a, a, that kind of what Haidt would refer to as that mm -hmm. um, zero-sum style. But, but there is what Haidt also calls a common humanity identity politics. So, so he doesn't reject identity politics full stop, but he rejects the version of it that's narrow and irrational and anti-intellectual and mm -hmm. anti-science. And so I would agree very much with that position. And so in, in your account, the policy responses to, the, to, the, to what you're describing are to basically, firstly, the rate of immigration uh, and cultural change does matter and should be a policy consideration. Um, and and then there's a broader point about how we talk about these things and the unhelpful way in which some of it's been talked about on the left. But what what are the other kind of um, responses, right. the policy implications of what you're arguing? Right. So I'm I'm arguing kind of also for a more a, a better understanding of the way ethnicity works and a recognition of the ethnic majority and also that it's assimilative and porous. I mean that's kind of the vision that I'm trying to 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 promote as well is this idea that. A kind of assimilative and inclusive ethnic majority is is actually arguably an important component to having a kind of unified nation as well. So underpinning a lot of uh, a lot of national identity, civic national identity, is this notion of a secure uh, ethnic majority. I mean, mm -hmm. you'd, it's not the case that if you have a country that's composed only of ethnic minorities, like Guyana, for example. Uh, that the roof is going to fall in. It's not. Those countries are fine. Uh, but I think there's a case to be made. They don't work. They don't function as smoothly as well as countries where there is a significant ethnic majority. And, and so, so part of what I'm arguing for, in a way, is a kind of re-envisioning of, of the ethnic majority as to say, okay, the, this group does have a future. It's a, future, it's a mixed-race future, but it's still its traditions, its myths of ancestry are going to continue. Yeah. And that, I think, offers something positive rather than we're getting more diverse, you're declining, you're the, you're the past, the future yeah. is the diversity. I think that message is, is actually behind, I mean, that, that's actually aggravating a lot of these conservative voters. And I just don't think it's going to work. It's just going to lead to polarization. So you're, yeah, and, and really what you're talking about here is 
you're talking about how, I guess the really interesting question is how you should build a national identity, right? Um, and you're saying that the the kind of a, uh, the kind of elite version of what is the okay version of nationalism at the moment, or national identity at the moment, is a kind of civic one, which is a bit basically it's too boring for anyone to kind yeah. of get into. Is that? Yeah, I'm sort of suggesting with national identity that. Um, I would see it more in terms of a menu rather than a hymn sheet. So the hymn sheet might be British values, the American creed. These are the six principles, and they're roughly the same principles in all countries, right? Um, So that doesn't really define national identity deeply for a lot of people in their daily lives. Now, it would be different if we were in a war, if there was the Cold War, if there were these other forces Mm -hmm. pressing on the nation state which could unify it. Those forces are not anywhere in sight. So we're going to... And meanwhile, we're in a global demographic revolution. So the ethnicity part is going to be very important. What I'm arguing is something I call multivocalism, which is that different groups, classes, regions are going to connect to the nation in different ways. And it's more like a menu where if you're white British, you might choose the landscape option as being part of your national identity. You might choose the ancestry, many generations on the land option on that menu. If you are newly arrived ethnic minority, then you aren't going to select those options, but you might cleave closer to perhaps something like the NHS, perhaps mm-hmm. you know the British economy, uh, the freedoms you enjoy in Britain. Maybe that the more forward-looking elements, or, or even Britain as a multicultural society, that those could be meaningful to you in a way they might not be as meaningful to um, rural members of, of the ethnic majority. And we saw that yeah. in this BBC. But English indeed, history. you could be a white uh, British-born white person who chooses a not very kind of ethnic majority definition of that too, right? I mean, Absolutely. Not, yeah. Yes, yeah. So ideology is very important. And in this BBC Englishness survey about what's important to your Englishness, I mean, we saw that you know, white British people tend to be much more attached to landscape than ethnic minorities and also to history. But the, the, the Remain-Leave divide is also very important. Mm-hmm. So Remainers are very attached to Britain's diverse cultural life or England's diverse cultural life as a, as a symbol of their Englishness, that's much less important for leavers. So depending on your ideology, that will uh, inflect uh, your version of national identity as well. What I'm arguing for then is not to impose a kind of one-size-fits-all on the population to demonize, the, as, as John Major says, those long shadows on county cricket grounds. Yeah. You know, that, that's actually a valid version of English national identity, and there's no problem with that. What the politicians should be doing is validating a range of those mm-hmm. versions of national identity, amongst which the multicultural and what is one. And I sort of think that is, what, I sort of in a funny kind of way think that is what's happening, at least in Britain. Um, the cricket, it's interesting you brought cricket right. up because uh, we had the famous, um, um, Norman Tebbit had the famous, um, uh, was it, did he call cricket it the test, cricket yeah. test, right? So uh, the test of assimilation of a, uh, British Asian, or Asian immigrants to Britain was you know, when India play England, who do they support in the cricket? Um, now, you know, by that definition, we've failed miserably uh, in the sense that Br- British Indians support India generally uh, or, or overwhelmingly. But I think what we've learned is that that's actually not a defining feature of Britishness. And actually supporting the Indian cricket team, but supporting England and the Olymp- Britain, the UK and the Olympics and, you know, going to the pub with your you know white or black friends or whatever is another version of Britishness so so we're sort of if anything I would say we're sort of closer to where you want us to be than 
Well, yes. I mean, that's a good example, right? So I think it's it's always a mistake to have the you know a, a, a hymn sheet or something where oh you don't support the cricket team you're not in. Uh-huh. I think that's a problem. Obviously, you have to have some red lines, you know, in terms of individual rights, women's rights. But yeah. yes, I think we've got there in in terms of what you're saying. But I'm not yet sure that we've got there in terms of the sort of more ethnic or conservative. Mm-hmm version of Britishness, Britishness being okay. Mm-hmm. I think that's still seen as, oh no, that's the old Britishness, you yeah. can't be that. Yeah. That's where I'm, I would say, no, you can be that. You actually can, you can support India in cricket and be British, and you can be attached to your, your ancestors, yeah. many generations on the land, and be British. Those are both They're equally fine. valid. Or... They're equally valid, none's better than the other, and, and so I would kind of go for that more flexible yeah. variety. Yes, there's a, you know, there are certain values, but you're, in allowing people to kind of create their own bespoke British and that's of course the way national identity mm. works it's different things in people's heads you know it's not you can't reduce national identity to a core set of symbols that, that are occupying people's brains at the exact same time it's going to vary person to person and we have to recognize that and that's one of the most interesting things about your book actually is it's, it manages to be simultaneously when you read the first half uh, you know I would say quite gloomy in the sense of the, the extent to which identity matters in, in, and Trump and, and, and so on. Um, but your actual prediction and um, both your program and prediction are quite optimistic. So let's end with the kind of the world in 50 years, 60 years time and, and what you think kind of the what you think this is, how you think society is going to look uh, then. Yeah, I mean, I what I argue very much, well, I'm not sure it'll be rosy. I mean, obviously, we're entering into a period where these white majorities are in decline and society will be getting more diverse until it melts. It'll melt later in the century. So while we're in this period of getting more diverse, I think there, there, there is scope for those tensions to increase and the, and the divisions and the polarizations to increase. What I'm arguing for is to have this vision of the ethnic majority having a future and seeing these developments, especially the mixed race developments, positively and therefore becoming less insecure. By And in fact, there was a study in the U.S. that asked a bunch of white Americans to think about their white identity absorbing groups through intermarriage and therefore maintaining itself, and actually people became more relaxed. And I think that kind of shows the sort of conversation we need to have which is to stop demonizing the white majority and stop talking about it as if it's the battle past uh, and to actually give it a place and give it a future. And I think that kind of, kind of in a way, anticipating that future melting could be a way of taking mm-hmm. some of the sting out of that cultural anxiety that's driving populism. Eric Kaufman, thanks a lot. Thanks very much. That was Eric Kaufman on Trump, Brexit and White Shift. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.